I want to take you to a second Bible reading as well this morning. Uh, If you would turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. Now this psalm is, um, as we read it, you might be able to imagine the Israelites perhaps using this song or poem at a time, perhaps like a a king's coronation or some other royal event. Um, The psalm is a reminder to Israel that the king of Israel is not just like the other kings of other nations, but because Israel are God's chosen people, then the king of Israel is God's chosen king of God's chosen nation. And so when the enemies rise up against that king, they're not just choosing another human enemy to battle against. They're pitting themselves against the God of the universe. We're reading this psalm today because, as we will see later, this psalm also has significance when it comes to understanding who Jesus is as the king of his people. Let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It might be worth keeping a bookmark or something in that page, as well as in Luke chapter 23, because we'll be looking at both of those readings this morning. We're going to continue worshipping Jesus, our King, with our next song, You Are the King of Glory.
Have you ever made the foolish mistake of ignoring someone because you didn't really know who they were? Embarrassingly, I made that mistake once. Um, when I'd finished university, my first job, on the first week of my first job after university, I was invited to a meal uh, with some of the uh, employees from the company and some of the other new starters that I was joining with. And I'd spent all week meeting new people and explaining who I was and explaining what my new job was and asking questions about the company. And Friday evening, I just wanted to go home and I was tired of all this meeting new people and explaining the same things over and over. And so the person sat on my table. uh, Well, I heard that he had some important job in the company, but I, I didn't quite work out what it was or what he was there to do. It was only later that I found out that he was the CEO of the company that I was about to work for. He was the top dog, the boss of the bosses, as it were. And uh, at that meal, I'd ignored him, not asked him a single question and not really spoken to him other than uh, being polite and answering my name and sharing where I was from. I kicked myself afterwards because I had such a great opportunity to talk to him, ask him all sorts of questions about the company and the industry. And I wasted it because I didn't realise who he was and I didn't respond to him appropriately. We're going to hear today about a man who makes a similar foolish mistake when he meets Jesus. He doesn't realise who Jesus really is and he doesn't respond to him in the appropriate way. And this lesson will serve as a warning for us. Who do you think Jesus is? Do you really have a right understanding of him? And are you really responding to him in the right way? And this lesson, as we look at his response to Jesus, will also be an opportunity for us to see, well, just what sort of person Jesus is and how we should respond to him, whether we are followers of him or whether we're just thinking about Christianity for the first times. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 23 and the man's response that we're going to look at is that of Herod. We're going to focus on King Herod and his interaction with Jesus. Now, so far in the book of Luke, we've uh, we've got up to the point where Jesus has been arrested and he's been put on trial. And the Jews and the chief priests, they've found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. Jesus is saying he is the Christ. He is the son of God. And so they want him dead. They want him out of the picture. Although they've not got the authority to put him to death. They've got to take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is not really interested in blasphemy. He's not really interested in any offence that this man might have caused against this Jewish God that he knows nothing of. And so they've got to cook up some other charges. And so in verse 2, they say to Pilate, we found this man, Jesus, uh, subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes and claims to be Christ, a king. He's a rebel. He's he's going to start a rebellion with the people, they're claiming. And you, Pilate, need need to do something about it. Well, it's funny, really, when you read Luke's account of how Pilate deals with the situation. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, if you say so. And then Pilate says, I don't find him guilty. Luke quite clearly is trying to rush through these details. He's got something else that he wants to focus on rather than the interactions between Jesus and Pilate. I think Luke would want you to see really the insistence of the Jews. This is not Pilate's decision to put him to death. This is the Jews who are pushing, who really want Jesus dead. 
And so they keep pushing even when the answer has been given no. And you can imagine the weariness of Pilate as he, as he, he faces Jesus and he listens to the shouting and the heckling from, from the Jews coming from his side. And he just wants rid of this situation. He doesn't want to deal with it. He wants to pass it on. And so as the conversation goes on, it, it crops up that, ah, this man Jesus is from Galilee. Well, Galilee belongs to the governance of another man. That's King Herod's territory. Pilate offers Herod the courtesy of being able to uh, try Jesus for himself. And, fortunate situation it is, Herod is in Jerusalem at that time. So they've not got to take Jesus very far at all. Just across the city, a few minutes walk. They take Jesus to go and see Herod. Now I want you to get a feel at this point for the sort of man that Herod is. This Herod that we're reading about here is not the same Herod that you read about in the Christmas story. You know the one who puts all the children under the age of two to death because he's worried about this new king? This Herod isn't that one, though this Herod is his son. And as you will see, there is some family likeness here in the way that they act. The thing that this Herod is famous for is for his wife. Herod was happily married and he was invited one time by his brother to come and spend a few weeks at his residence out in the country. And so Herod and his wife go down there. And while Herod is there having that little holiday with his brother, Herod has an affair with his brother's wife. And so when it comes time to return home, he doesn't return with his own wife. He returns with his brother's wife. His brother's wife, incidentally, is also his own niece. So Herod has landed himself in a marriage which is both adulterous and incestuous. And when he gets back to Galilee, he finds that there's a man called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has been given a special task by God to preach, to preach repentance, to tell people to turn away from sin. And when John the Baptist hears about this very public sin by a very public figure, King Herod, then John the Baptist speaks out about it. He preaches against it. Herod doesn't do much at first. He respects John the Baptist as a, a holy man and a righteous man, someone to be revered, respected, although not quite holy enough that Herod would have to do what he says. And so in the end, Herod locks John the Baptist up. But for Herod's new wife, locking him up isn't good enough. She wants him gone. She can't do with anybody who would speak against her name and her husband's name. And so one time, Herod's birthday party, in fact, when Herod drinks himself into such stupidity that he offers up to half of his kingdom to his daughter-in-law. Then his wife asks for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Herod asks for it to be done and John the Baptist is killed. Sometime later, um, another man rises up in Galilee. This time it's Jesus. And he also goes about teaching, but he also is doing miracles. Herod hears about this man, Jesus, and his first response is fear. Is this the same man that I've put to death? Is this John the Baptist come back from the dead? Is he going to come back and haunt me? And although his first thought is fear... Herod is filled with curiosity about this new man. 
in the end is convinced that it's not John the Baptist. After all, he's got John the Baptist's head there on a plate. And so by Luke chapter 9, Herod has decided he wants to see Jesus. He wants to hear about him. He wants to see some of his miracles. And by Luke chapter 13, curiosity has changed into animosity. Herod now wants to kill Jesus. And so by the time we get to Luke chapter 23, the portion we've read today, and Herod receives Jesus as a criminal on trial, well, Herod is overjoyed. He's very pleased. This is the moment he's been looking forward to. Here he's got Jesus right in front of him on his own terms, bound up, locked in shackles, you can imagine, led by guards, already beaten and battered, weakened. And so Herod can relate to him and ask him a few questions without fear of any repercussions. You know, like when you go to the zoo and you see the gorilla there in the cage behind the glass. What's the first thing you always, nearly always do when you go and see the animals at the zoo? You tap on the glass, isn't it? You want to get them to move. You want to get them to respond. You try and goad them or provoke them for the sake of your entertainment. And Herod does similar. When Jesus is brought in front of him, Herod throws any number of questions at him. Are you really the son of God? That's what I've heard. Did you really turn just those few loaves into loads of bread for lots and lots of people? Is it true that you can turn stones into bread if you want to? Could you turn these things into gold for me? You can imagine the questions that Herod is throwing at Jesus. And yet Jesus remains totally silent. Verse 9. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Why did he do that? Why didn't Jesus answer? Why didn't Jesus use this opportunity to escape from his situation? Back in Luke chapter 13, that time when Herod had wanted to kill Jesus, this was Jesus' response. Jesus said, tell that fox, Herod, I will drive out demons today and tomorrow. On the third day, I will reach my goal. In other words, Jesus was telling Herod back then, Look, my time for driving out demons and for preaching, the time for you to come and see my miracles and the signs of who I really am is today and tomorrow. My goal is my crucifixion and my rising on my third day. Herod, if you wanted to see a miraculous sign, if you wanted your questions answered, if you wanted to hear me preach, the time was then, not now. You've had your chance. And you took no notice. And so Jesus remains silent. Not a word. And Herod decides that this man who he once so regarded, so feared even, now seems so powerless, so useless, so ineffective, that he's worthless in effect. Especially so with the voices of the Jews and the chief priests from, from the edges of the courtroom shouting at him and jeering insults and, and more accusations. And so Herod brushes him off, pushes him aside, mocks him, dresses him up in fancy dress. Oh, you reckon you're a king, dear? I can, I can give you a robe to help with that. You don't look much like a king at the minute. I've never seen a king so beaten up and bruised. Herod mocks him. He doesn't see him as a threat, nor as an influence, nor of anything of importance. He doesn't see him of any use at all. And Herod doesn't even 
justify him or honour him with the uh, honour of passing a judgment on him. Herod neither acquits him nor convicts him. He just sends him away back to Pilate. I've done with him. He's no use to me. Now, why would Luke include this little account in his gospel? Luke, incidentally, is the only one of the four gospels that includes Jesus going to see Herod. Why does Luke want us to know about Jesus meeting Herod? Remember, as we've been looking through these uh, accounts of the crucifixion, the trial and the crucifixion and then the resurrection, we've seen that Luke is keen to show us that the crucifixion is not, it's not just a bad end to a good story. The crucifixion actually is all part of God's plan. And so you've, you've been able to listen to Luke and the way, the way Luke brings in certain details. He's brought in the details of, of Jesus telling his disciples what will happen next. Jesus warning his disciples about Peter denying him, for example, about him being arrested and who he will be arrested by. Luke wants you to know that for Jesus, these events aren't out of control, but they are exactly as Jesus was expecting them to happen, though they are performed under the free will and the uh, wickedness of the men who are performing them. And Luke makes clear that this crucifixion is not just a few politicians or leaders getting their way and getting rid of uh, an enemy. The crucifixion is the time when all the powers of darkness clash with full force against the one who is the light of the world. And so by including this account with Herod, Luke is showing us this very same thing, that God is still in control, that there is something greater than the people involved in the events can see at this moment in time. How does Herod's meeting with Jesus show us that God is in control? Two ways. The first way is that by having Jesus sent to Herod, then God uses this to show us that there are two independent, unbiased witnesses to the innocence of Jesus. You know, if you were to ask a Jew, even today, why is it that they don't believe that Jesus is a Messiah? Then I imagine that for a lot of them, their answer would be quite simple. Why should I believe that he was the Messiah? He was convicted and killed as a criminal. Our Messiah, they would say, is not a convicted criminal. And Luke, by recounting this story, asks back at them, well, who is it that convicted them? Who is it that convicted Jesus? It wasn't Pilate and it wasn't Herod. It was the Jews. In God's providential control, Jesus was handed over to Herod so that in the words of Jewish law, the matter would be established by two witnesses. Pilate, three times in this account, says, I find no basis for these charges against this man. I find no basis for these charges against this man. I find no basis for these charges against this man. He's innocent. And Herod agrees. You've got two witnesses who are saying this man is not guilty of the things that you're accusing him of. He does not deserve the death penalty. He is innocent. 
God shows us that Jesus is innocent. And secondly, God uses this event to fulfill the prophetic predictions about who the Messiah would be. In the book of Acts, which is like Luke's uh, sequel to his, his gospel, in the book of Acts, Luke records a little prayer meeting that happens. And at that prayer meeting, the apostles use Psalm 2 as part of their prayers. Let's go back to Psalm 2, if you've still got a bookmark there. The, the apostles pray at that prayer meeting, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And the apostles explain that those words in Psalm 2, written hundreds of years before Jesus came on this earth, those words are fulfilled when Jesus stands before the rulers of this earth, Herod and Pontius Pilate, and they take their stand against him and say, send him to be crucified. God's prophetic predictions about the Messiah are fulfilled when Jesus goes and stands before Herod. The psalm goes on then. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. What does God make of Herod's easy dismissal of Jesus? God laughs. The one enthroned in heaven scoffs back at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger. The anger, the judgment, the derision of all the kings of the earth are nothing against the power of God. Despite all their efforts, God says, Psalm 2 verse 6, I will install my king on Zion, my holy hill. My plan will not be thwarted, says God. My king will still be king, even though you put him to death, even though you stick him on a cross, even though you bury him in a tomb, my king will be king. And Psalm 2 ends with a warning. Verse 10, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. It's a warning directed at the kings of the earth, perhaps one that Herod himself should have listened to. You know, not many years after that trial of Jesus, Herod himself was put on trial against false accusations. One of his brother brothers dobbed him in to the Roman Emperor Caligula and accused him of treason. By all accounts, the, the accounts were baseless. The, the accusations were baseless. And yet Herod was found guilty. He was exiled and eventually killed. He lost all that he had. He was rebuked by God. But this warning from Psalm 2 is a warning that we ought to heed to. What is your assessment of Jesus? Do you stand against him? Do you reject him? Or are you willing to bow down and kiss him? Are you like Herod? Does your acceptance of Jesus depend upon him first answering your requests? Are you willing to accept Jesus as your Lord so long as he meets my needs first? So long as he meets my expectations 
Are you like Herod in that you mock his claim to be king? You're happy to be part of the church for the, for the social benefits and the, the encouragement it is to have, have like-minded friends. But you're not willing to bow the knee to Jesus as your king. You're not willing to live for him the rest of the week. Are you more influenced by the accusations against Jesus that come from the world around you? Just like, just like Herod ended up being influenced by the, the Jews and, and the chief priests who were hurling accusations at Jesus. Do you listen more often to the world around you who mocks and ridicules and accuses Jesus of all sorts of baseless things? And are you, like Herod, going to leave it too late to respond to Jesus? Are you going to miss your opportunity? You know, they say that falling off a building doesn't hurt. It's hitting the floor that hurts. You know, rejecting Jesus doesn't hurt. If you reject Jesus today, the world will keep spinning. You'll probably go on on your way in life for perhaps years, decades, without feeling or recognising much difference to the way your life is now. But one day you'll hit the bottom. You'll come face to face with Jesus himself. You'll experience his wrath, his power, his might, his authority. And that's when your rejection of him will really start to smart. That's when it will really hurt. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery, it says. Don't go on rejecting Jesus. Kiss the son. Bow to him. Submit to him, lest he be angry. But you know, Psalm 2 also ends with this note of encouragement. Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. What does that mean? Does that mean that if we become a Christian, then everything will be happy? My life will be blessed forever? Well, certainly your life will be blessed, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything will be easy. Just like they mocked Jesus, rejected Jesus, ignored Jesus, twisted his words, threw false accusations at him, just like they ostracized him and pushed him to one side, just like they didn't respect him or honor him, so also they still do today. They can't get at him personally, and so they do the next best thing. In fact, in biblical terms, it's the very same thing. They attack his church, his people. They will mock, reject, push you aside, twist your words, throw false accusations at you if you belong to Christ. Walking in the footsteps of Jesus means walking even those footsteps that took him through Pontius Pilate's court, through Herod's court and up to the cross. As you face the the heat of the oppression and the rejection of the world in which we live, remember this, that God has not lost his grip on what is happening. It's all part of his design. This rejection of his anointed one, of, of his king, this rejection of his church 
is part of the means that God is using. He's using it to prove to the world that their accusations are false and baseless. He's using it to prove to the world that you, as one of the people of Christ, are innocent. He's using it to prove to the world, uh, he's using it to achieve his purposes in your life. God will use the rejection of the world in order to make you more like the pattern of Jesus Christ, your saviour. And so when you become, uh, when you persevere through rejection, uh, when you stick fast to, to proclaiming Jesus, uh, when you are willing to stand up in the office or in the schoolyard or, uh, or online or whatever it is and say, yes, I belong to Jesus. Then you become a model and reflection of Jesus Christ himself. And when people look at you, they see the same things that God is doing through you as God was doing through Jesus Christ. They see God witnessing to the truth through you. They see you following the path of suffering, which leads to the path of glory, just like Jesus did. And they see you as the means that God is using to bring other people to saving knowledge, to forgiveness, into the family of God, just like God did with Jesus. Jesus walked that path to bring us to God. And he invites you to walk the same path to bring others to God, to bring glory to God, to be vindicated as one of his Would you pray with me to finish? Our Father, we are reminded again by these words that you are in control. You're in control of all things at all times, even when it looks like things are going so wrong. And yet that is such a small reminder. It's it's also an important reminder for us right now. As we read these things, we're also reminded of your glory and the glory of your Son, and his honour, and his rule, and his authority, and his kingship. Father, would you help us to see him for who he is, your anointed king, our judge, and the Lord of all the earth, whether we bow the knee to him now or not. And so for those who don't know him, Father, I pray that you would convict them, help them to turn from sin, help them to count the cost, and to be ready to give up what leads to death and destruction in order to follow Jesus along the path of life and glory. And help us who are believers to follow faithfully in Jesus' steps. Make us faithful witnesses for him. Help us to persevere even through those times when it feels like we are stood in Herod's court, mocked at, abused, ridiculed and alone. And Father, we pray that you would achieve the same purposes in us as you were achieving in Christ Jesus, drawing people to yourself and vindicating us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.